and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm your host, Ray Gerard. With me today in studio, our co-host, Mr. Bob Enigas. Bob, welcome once again. Thanks for uh, for letting me be here, Ray. It's always a pleasure. So this is St. Paul's Letters to America, or as it might otherwise be called, truth be told. Why? Well, if St. Paul were alive today and wrote a letter to us here in America, he would tell us things that were and are true. The truth does not change. It does not change with the times. It does not change from place to place. That's what makes it the truth. But today, many people don't even believe there is such a thing as truth. The truth is what we make it, they say. The truth is fluid, they say. The truth needs to mold to the moment, they say. So how can we know if there is truth? And if there is, how can we know it when we see it? Well, a couple of ways. One is to use our brain power, our reason, to examine and ask what makes sense. Another is to look at what produces good results, what makes us feel peace, what brings more disharmony and discord and disunites us. So that is what we do here. We ask those types of questions. So let's get to it. Now, this program is being brought to you in conjunction with St. Joseph Radio and the St. Joseph Evangelization Network who kindly lend us their studios to record this broadcast. And what are we going to talk about today? Because we always try to um, look at something that's in the news. Well, there's something that's in the news lately that, uh, you know, is probably the biggest news story, one of, perhaps one of the biggest news stories to come down the pike in the last 50 years. It's what everybody is talking about. It's the reversal of the Supreme Court decision known as Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's a huge Huge decision, of course. Um, and the majority opinion that was issued in this case that overturned Roe versus Wade um, is going to be analyzed for years. People are going to debate it for years. People are going to try to tear it apart, examine it. But that's not what we're going to do here today. No, we're going to look at the dissenting opinion. Now, this all started 50 years ago when a woman known by an alias, a woman uh, called Jane Rowe in court proceedings, uh, brought a lawsuit because she wasn't able to have an abortion under state law at the time. And she was unknown. The actual person was unknown for a number of years until the 1980s. But really, even now, it's not important to know who the woman is. I mean, who that particular individual woman is. After 50 years, there have been 63 million women who have um, been able to use the legal right to an abortion that has existed in this country uh, for that time. And so Jane Roe, this person known as Roe, she's really just a symbol, a representative of, of women. And this dissenting opinion, the reason why we want to look at the uh, opinion of the dissenting justices, what those justices who did not agree with the majority, what they had to say, the reason we want to look at what, what they wrote is because they have a concept of the modern woman, a concept to be protected in their view of the representative woman that was first uh, envisioned by the Supreme Court, the, you know, those 50 years ago. And it's interesting um, what, uh, what they have in mind for the identity of a woman, the identity of, of Roe, the identity of, uh, of women in general. Now, um, I guess it's also important that we say, I think at the outset we need to notice or give note to something of, of significance in this opinion. I mean, you know, we can, we can talk about, uh, you know, what a, what, what a woman is in, in, in in regard to this, this right, so-called right to an abortion. But, of course, the, the main question, the elephant in the room, is this idea of, hey, when life begins. And the reason why I do want to mention it is because we don't want to fall into, uh, into the same mistake that the uh, dissenting justices do. You know, the reason why they say that a right to an abortion is important is... Well, is, is manifold. They give lots of explanations, lots of reasons as to why it's important. And it really focuses on the woman. They say, for example, 
Um, consider first then this line of the court, these, this court's cases proje- uh, protecting bodily integrity. No right in this court's time-honored view is held more sacred or is more carefully guarded than the right of every individual to the possession and control of his own person. And then they cite cases dealing with forced surgery, forced stomach, pipe, uh, stomach pumping, forced administration of antipsychotic drugs. And so, yes, it's important to be able to control what happens to your body, what other people may do with your body. But all those cases that they cite, forced surgery and the like, they deal with a particular individual's body. They're not considering the fact that there could be, that there are two bodies at issue in this case. That does make a difference, but they never talk about it. The question, the main question, the question staring everybody in the face, the elephant in the room, well, when does life begin? And of course, just like the original court that decided Roe versus Wade, they don't get into it. They ignore it. Well, you know, um, a lot of other people don't. A lot of people do want to ask that question. I mean, how can you decide a case like this without asking that question? Well, a lot of people would think, well, let's, you know, maybe science can give us the answer to that. You're a science guy, Bob. Isn't science the answer to everything? Well, science has answers for everything. Whether whether it is the answer for everything, I don't know. I I, I chased a lot of those answers down myself. And uh, the the fact of the matter is, the question you're asking about when life begins begins a discussion that involves our Maker. When He made us, when did He make us to be alive? When did did we come into being? Um, you don't have to travel too far through the scriptures or through the Bible to know that Jesus Christ himself started at immediately uh, as the, our, the archangel visited Mary, and the Holy Spirit came over her, and Jesus began. He existed in the womb. And we talk about that life starting at that point. I, the, the Bible is full of those sort of things that help us to understand that. And obviously the justices don't want to take that on because it's a bit scary. I got, you're one of those quirky guys. You're actually, like, I ask you a science question, you go into faith. You actually kind of think faith and science might kind of go together. Oh, they're married. You're a very, I, very, God, very quirky guy. You, well, well, <laughs> you're not the first one to tell me that. But uh, the, the, the answer is I am quirky, and I do most strenuously believe that God invented science. <laughs> and we are putting all of this together, and all we do is scientists. We may discover uh, you know, things in science, but it's not like we made those things. No, in fact, that's exactly right. We, we have scientists that dance in the streets with their discovery when all they have done is figured out what God what, what's did. What's been there for a long what, time. What God put together. It's, it's not like they sort of showed up and came up with life, or they, right. they all of a sudden de- developed a new element, or they, they did these crazy things. Instead, they simply discover what God made available. So if we're trying to discover... Uh, answers to things like, when does life begin? Could we not maybe do that strictly from the point of view of science? You know, if you go to um, uh, Planned Parenthood's website, you might find this article that I did called, It's Science, Five Facts You Need to Know About Abortion. Now, if Planned Parenthood is telling you five facts you need to know about abortion, I mean, I would think one of those things would be some indication of when life begins. I mean... Uh, you know, I mean, that, uh, you know, I mean, if, if they had a scientific answer uh, to that, you would think that, you know, you're going to find that here. These are the five most important things people need to know that science can tell us in regard to abortion. Well, what do they talk about? Number one, surgical abortion is unsafe. Number two, medication abortion does work. Number three, uh, abortion does not increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. Uh, Number four, IUDs and emergency contraception uh, do not cause abortion. Number five, abortion does not lead to low self-esteem. Well, that's all well and good, but again, that ignores the main question. You might uh, also go, for example, uh, in search of an article which uh, I found uh, written by a university newspaper. Uh, It's called the Ubisi, Ubisi. Anyways, University of British Columbia. And they wrote a piece, What Does Science Have to Say About Abortions? 
What does science have to say about abortions? Wide open. Again, you're thinking, okay, I mean, are we dealing with two bodies here or just one? Is, is it just simply the woman's right to control her body or is there more to it than that? When does life begin? Uh, let's see. So what do they talk about? Well, they talk about myth number one, abortions are used instead of birth control. Uh, number two, abortions are dangerous and have lasting side effects. Number three, abortions hurt the fetus. Uh, they think that's a myth, but um, there's a lot of scientific evidence to the Actually, they don't say it's a myth. They just talk about like when it happens. They said the average duration of a pregnancy, at least in Canada, is about six weeks. And at six weeks, they can't, the, the argument is they can't really feel pain. Well, okay, but, you know, I mean, there are other abortions that don't happen as early as six weeks. But anyway, it's beside the point. Uh, at least from their perspective. Uh, myth number four, abortions cause depression. Trust, sounds like the Planned Parenthood type. Again, you know, there's no discussion of when life begins. I mean, these people that are trotting out science, I mean, cannot science help us answer this question of when life begins? Well, uh, I've got, uh, I think I've got an answer for you, Bob. Pretty, pretty good question, too. I, I think that that's sort of the center of the uh, the storm here that we're, we're looking at. Now, here's a strange guy. This guy was a law school graduate who then um, started, uh, gave a survey to a bunch of, like, scientists. He, uh, he was in a Ph.D. program at the University of Chicago. He got his uh, law degree from Northwestern and then was uh, in a Ph.D. program at the University of Chicago for comparative human development, a science um, uh, science of sorts. Anyways, um, so he did a strange thing. Um, he designed a survey to understand biologists' assessment of when life begins. And he mailed, sur emailed surveys to professors in biology departments of over 1,000 institutions around the world. And responses began to pour in. He found that he got over 5,500 responses. He found that 5,337 5, biologists, 96%, 96% affirmed that a human's life begins at fertilization, with 244% rejecting that view. The majority of those, uh, of that 96%, 89% identified themselves as liberal, 85 poor choice, non-religious 63, Democrats 92. Um, well, he caused a firestorm when this got, when word got out about this. Um, caused an absolute firestorm. So if you ask scientists the answer to the, what is the answer to the question of when life begins? For over 5,000 people involved, 96% uh, said uh, at the beginning, um, but, of course, that doesn't matter, uh, at least not to the court, and also to a neuroscientist named Maureen Kondik, who stated, establishing by clear scientific evidence the moment at which a human life begins is not the end of the abortion debate. On the contrary, that is the point from which the debate begins. So now you see what is involved here. Yes, it's the ability to control a person's body, but it's also the ability to control a human life after it begins. And that bothered uh, Father Ronald Rollheiser as far back as 1985. He's a, he's a phenomenal guy. Phenomenal guy, well-known, well-written Catholic mm. theologian. Mm -hmm. um, and he went back in 1985 to a conference where there was a, a Catholic uh, theologian named Marjorie McGuire who uh, was speaking, and she, a Catholic theologian, and she said that abortion is always, always wrong, always a negativity. But she said, but, he, but I was, uh, da, 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 da. yeah, but he said I was less impressed after that. The bottom line was that she did argue for abortion on demand, submitting, quote, if someone depends upon someone else's body for life, that someone does not have an inalienable right to life. Father Rollheiser comments, an unwanted fetus demands your body and your commitment 
to come to terms. No court, uh, oh, she argued, according to Father Rodenhauser, she argued that an unwanted fetus demands your body and your commitment to come to term, and no court should be able to demand that you donate your body. Unfortunately, Father Rollheiser says, if that were true, then I submit newborn babies also have no inalienable right to life. Like an unborn, they too demand upon somebody's body to survive. So if we carry Father Rollheiser's logic out a little bit further, then there's never a right to life, period. Because we all depend on the body of another. All of us that do uh, do make it into this world, we all have depended at one point in time on the body of another. So we all began we all began without a right to life, without a right to it. Um, and so conceptually, no one, no such thing. There is no such thing at all as a right to life, unless we picked it up somewhere, somehow. I mean, if we all started without a right to life because we're dependent on someone else's body before we were born, if that's how we all started, then all of us started without a right to life. From the moment we were conceived, we did not have this right. Therefore, we must have picked it up somewhere. Well, it's not really a right. It's not really a human right. It's a what, we were, you know, allowed to live? Um, so you can see that the implications are troubling of this way of thinking. But, you know, let's, um, let's go back to this. Let's play for a moment as if this question of when life begins doesn't really matter, that we can decide you know what uh, you know what what is you know what is important in the life of a woman and and a woman alone without having to give consideration to the unborn child so what does what does the dissent have to say in that regard well you know we got a we got a taste of it already when they said hey the, the, this right to control your body is one of the most important constitutional rights and they expanded on that a little bit um, near the end of the dissent, dissenting opinion that they wrote, they said, the expe expectation of reproductive control is integral to many women's identity. Identity. Who you are as a person. Who a woman is as a woman. Who, that she, who she is in her very soul, if you will. Who she is at the core of her being. Her identity itself this is an integral part of it, the right to an abortion. And of course, the right to an abortion, if these 5,337 scientists are correct, that means, you know, uh, the right to terminate a life that began at fertilization. Well, that's kind of disturbing. Your identity as a person is the ability to terminate human life after it's begun. Your identity is born and your identity is wrapped inextricably with the ability to terminate life. I mean, talk about a circle, you know, into, into it's pretty, chaos. It's pretty gruesome. I, it's pretty gruesome. It, it sounds like the only person that really has a, has a real job is the executioner. I, I, if, if that's the only one, that, that's just brutal. So is that really what these justices are trying to tell us? Well, it can't be. It can't be. Um, and so they go on, and I, and I think this maybe helps to understand it. This right to an abortion helps define a sphere of freedom in which a person has the capacity to make choices free of governmental control. The right, the, the right to an abortion orders her thinking as well as her living Beyond the individual choice about residence or education or career, her whole life reflects the control and authority that the right grants. So what they're saying is that, you know, more than, more than anything else in this world, the right to control your body comes first. Nothing else in the world matters 
if you don't even have, you don't start with the right over your own body. Now, again, this ignores the other person. The focus is exclusively on the woman without the other life that's involved. It's like a horse with blinders that can't see what's off to the side. We simply ignore the question. And you have to ignore the question because otherwise then you're in that ghoulish realm where your identity is wrapped with the ability to take your... So anyways, so this is the issue here. But even when they have these blinders on, they consider things from only the perspective of one of the individuals that are involved. And by the way, we keep talking about the woman. There's another individual involved, which of course is the father. And he should be in this picture just as much, you know, as as the woman. And, you know, if she's got to make a commitment uh, to allow a baby to come to term, excuse me, you know, the father does too. Uh, but anyways. But well, our it, courts expect that if someone is the father, that they play and are involved in the child's life financially at, at least, uh, at least as a minimum, and hopefully, as a uh, as a force in the uh, in the existence, right? It, it, but that doesn't always happen. That's the nature of a paternity suit, right? But anyways, um, but even if we look at things with this exclusive kind of perspective, it's interesting even more to look at like how the court envisions a woman. So the control of your body is important. But more than any other choice about residence, education, or career, her whole life, her whole life, residence, education, career, and, of course, control of your own body. Is anything being left out? That's, that's the definition of a woman. And I would guess a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, this context, the context of the decision, the context of the dissent is – that women have not been able to enjoy for much of the history of this country the same rights as men. And so that's why it's so important to women to have certain rights so that they can be equal to men. And uh, so, yeah, I would, I, would, I would, you know, if they're trying to achieve equality with men, then if, it, then if we're talking about the identity of a, of a woman, then I think, yeah, you're talking about the identity of a person, any person. Um, well, you know, that caused me to think. Some, some things caused me to think. Um, at times the process is very slow, but it does happen. And I was thinking, well, what might St. Paul have to say about this? Is there a truth to be told about this? So let's turn to St. Paul. Brothers and sisters, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither does circumcision mean anything, nor does uncircumcision, but only a new creation. Peace and mercy be to all who follow this rule and to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one make troubles for me, for I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. May I boast of nothing except the cross. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world is not important. The world is not important. And in point of fact, of course, you know, if <laughs> you might happen to be like somebody saying, like St. Paul and you were blinded, you know, by a manifestation, a direct manifestation of Christ himself and he came down and spoke to you and Okay, your, your perspective on life might be a little different. But that's the truth. There is this Christ. There's this Christ that died for our sins on the cross. And then once we see that truth, the world and its your residence, your education, your career, I don't think they're going to matter so much. Now, of course, that's, that's a pretty far step to take for a lot of people, you know. Maybe uh, maybe we can't go go there quite so fast. Well, but St. Paul did, right? He said life is a relationship with God. That's, that's what life is. That's what it's all about, giving ourselves over to the cross and to have this relationship uh, through Jesus Christ with God, his Father. 
That's, in essence, where he was putting the emphasis, eh? So if you have that relationship with Christ that you're talking about, Bob, you kind of, you do look at the world differently. Amen. Now, how about a worldview that, that's kind of like this? Here's what somebody wrote. The strong desire comes to me to hear something other than praise. Um, she writes about um, her sisters that tell her the struggles that I give them, what they don't like about me. Oh, truly, it's more than a pleasure. It's a delicious banquet that floods my soul with joy. I can't explain how a thing that is so displeasing to nature can cause such great happiness. If I hadn't experienced it, I wouldn't be able to believe it. Well, that's an outlook on the world that is screwy. I mean, to everything that we normally think of, that's just nuts, right? And she acknowledges it herself. It is so displeasing. Something so displeasing to nature can cause such great happiness. It's the antithesis of the world. It's a desire to be criticized, to be put down. This is what she, and she delights in it. We are talking, this, these, that was written, those words were written by St. Therese of Lisieux. Yeah, she had a different worldview. She had a different worldview where, you know, she was able to accept criticism and turn it into joy. You know, the, the view of the world where what matters most is me. What matters is my career, my education, where, my residence, where I live, etc. Um, no, it's not me, me, me. It's not. And so the question is, which can give us more peace? Which, you know, if something is true, is it likely to make us feel better? If something is disturbing, you know, if it rubs us the wrong way, is it not likely to be something that conflicts with the truth? Unless the truth is bad. You know, if, if the truth of all reality is that we're meant to get along with one another, uh, perhaps even love one another, if there's goodness in the world, if that's the truth, then things that disquiet us, things that make us upset with other people, those not, might not be so connected with the truth. Whereas the things that give us peace and joy, those might be. And if uh, letting other people vent some steam brings us happiness, maybe that's because we're supposed to be connected with other people. Maybe that's because we're supposed to live to make things easier for other people, to allow them to, to do what they want instead of what I want. This is a very different worldview. It's a very different picture of reality than the one that's that you can find in the dissenting opinion written by the, the three justices who rejected the uh, Dobbs v. Jackson a majority approach. The, um, the whole life of Christ is all about everyone else and him serving us. God himself came into this world to take care of us and make it capable for us to be with his Father for the rest of eternity. He came in to serve us. And if it was good enough for him. <laughs> if it was good enough for, for God himself, I, I, I think maybe we could learn from that, yeah? Um, you know, there's so much that you could uh, quote from uh, St. Teresa of, of Lisieux. I mean, she had such a simple beauty. She's a doctor of the church, and she died when she was 24. Mm -hmm. um, and she wasn't highly educated or anything of the sort, but she had a, real, a simplicity to her understanding of things that it was uh, regarded, you know, uh, that the things that she understood were so theologically true, and that's why she's accorded this title of being a doctor of the church. But anyways, she talks also, and, and, the, and for that reason, there's so many things that we could quote from her, but I'll give you just one more. She said, um, she also wrote this, Suddenly, in a vision, in a vision, I heard in the distance the harmonious sound of a musical instrument. Then I was able to make out a well-lit room, quite brilliant with gilding, with elegantly dressed girls giving each other compliments and worldly politeness. Then my glance fell on, a, on the poor invalid that I was holding up. 
Instead of a melody, I heard from time to time her plaintive moaning. Instead of gilding, I saw the bricks of our austere cloister dimly lit by a weak glimmer. I can't express what happened in my soul, but what I do know is that the Lord illuminated it with rays of truth that so far surpassed the dark glitter of worldly feasts that I couldn't believe my happiness. Um, holding up an invalid girl and the truth of reality that she understood from God gave her so much more happiness than the pleasantries and pleasures that could be found in a little banquet feast of some sort. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little pleasure, is it not? Um, but it's, it's a pleasure wrapped up with this idea of doing something good for somebody else. And why cannot that give us pleasure? Well, because when we extend love, how does that make us feel? Um, you know, I mean, if we do something for ourselves, can that compare with the warmth that we're going to feel when we do something in a loving nature for somebody else? I mean, we all experience that at, at times. Well, absolutely, Ray. I, you know, if you think back, and if you're a if you're a parent, and you think back of some of your triumphs, whether they be athletically, or they be scholastically, or they be in business, or whatever it is, and you think back with either pride or or um, with um, dislike of something that went poorly, whatever you look at, and then you think of your child's successes or failures. Which one becomes more vivid? Which one becomes more important? I know for me, I think nothing of my own failure except that it was a learning, whereas it pains me to see my children fail. It pains me to do so. It becomes much more important. And the joys that I receive I, that, that went well, I think of them, but I think more of when something happened with my kids. I... I think of pain that I've experienced in my life, yet I probably have a hard time going back and telling you about all of those. But I can tell you the pains that my children went through and the difficulties that they suffered. The love of another, the care of another, is just that simple and apparent. It becomes way more important than our own. Cuts through everything. Cuts through everything. Goes, goes right through it and goes exactly to this point. We are built to care for others. We are built to care for the children that we bring into this world and take care of. We are built to watch over them. A bird, and I'm not saying that we're birds, but you watch them. Why is it that male birds are colorful and female birds are not? So that the male can distract the hunter or the predator and leave the mother to take care of the life of the young. The whole world is built like this. That's, that's the way it is. It's to take care of those that we are bringing into the world and bringing them up. That's the way God made it. we're built that way too. And, and we're built the same way. We are built to take care of others, to love others, to watch over others. And as soon as we get to a dissenting opinion that says, no, it's, it's more important that I am taken care of, we have lost sight of how the world was built and what exists, we, we, we're just completely missing it. Or it just may be that the dissent is, is properly in the dissent yeah. as opposed to the majority. Um, all right. I had, I know, well, I didn't really know him. That was my misfortune. My mom had a, a cousin, and he was known affectionately as Pop, Father Pop, Father Pop Schifferly. He was a guy who had a parish, a um, little parish, little church. I've seen pictures of the church, um, you know, uh, rural kind of community. Anyways, he loved poetry. And at one point, he put a bunch of poems together in a book of poems. Um, some he wrote, some from people that he knew. This one was from somebody that he knew, uh, one who lived in Horseheads, New York. Anyway... She wrote a poem called The Heart's Desire, and it reads like this. A golden key was given to a poor traveler who had seen the world's richness, but he did not take it. 
He then was invited to partake of the sumptuous meal prepared only for kings, but he did not take it. The ease of life without toil also was offered, but he did not take it. Prestige and honors his name and lights for all to see, but he did not take it. What can it be you keep on looking for, he was finally asked. And he replied, what keeps my heart at peace and whomever, whomever accepts my love. These are the treasure I will keep, for they indeed contain all the heart's desires. <laughs> what whoever accepts my love. Um, yeah, um, it's you know, it's a different view of life. What's not important? What was not important to this guy was you know the world's richness. Um, life without toil, prestige, all of that sort of stuff. What matters was, what mattered to him was if somebody accepted his love. If he had, you know, if he could give and feel love. That's what you were talking about, Bob, with your kids. Um, I give you, I give you one more, and this one even maybe hits even a little closer to home. I walked the past the other day. Surprise and fear mingled in strange combination. The sweet and the forgotten blending across the many years I called my childhood. Much as the child at two, I saw myself today, delighted at my beginnings. Gently, all that I am becoming had its beginnings then. Preferences, motivation, awareness, even a sense of humor, undeveloped. And clearly the fact and gift of introversion, of knowing the who I am and can become. Growth indeed has taken place, yet of the same rich ore at birth given that now I see requires a lifetime to acknowledge and nurture as my own self. Looking past or through all the years, he found that what he is, what this person is becoming, uh, what he is now was still, you know, a product of that rich ore that was at birth given. He can see, he can trace all these things to when he was, all that he is today to the thing. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm using uh, uh, references to this person as if he was a he, but it's not. It was, it was a woman who wrote the poem. But anyways, all that, uh, all that she was becoming, I mean, um, could trace to when she was two and even, even before that. Yeah, well, there, there's something special about each person from the very beginning, from the very first. I know, you know, I, my, my older daughter was a premature infant. She was born before nine months. She was born at about six months gestation. And uh, she survived and survived to be a nurse in an intensive care unit taking care of other premature babies. But uh, from the very first moment that I could see her, um, Again, you know, you know, two and a half, three months before, it was almost three months, uh, before um, she was supposed to be born. Even then, in the incubator, she had a fight to her spirit, a dynamism that I recognize still. It was there then. And it's, you know, it's, it is true. But these sci there's a reason why, you know, these, these scientists, all of them said life begins when it does at the very beginning because, you know, that's human life. That's human life. And we ignore it at our peril, really. And, you know, if, you know, if to ignore it, you know, requires that we then look instead to the things of this world that make us happy. Well, you know, I mean... I don't know how many people can really find true joy and true happiness with education, career, where you live. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's just a very different. It's a very different worldview. We have to be taught, I think, Ray, to want that worldview. Right, a child that doesn't have any idea of any of those things, but it does want the love and comfort of mother or father or whoever, right? A, a fetus still in the womb as it hears the mother's voice. It recognizes it when it comes out. 
and can hear that same voice. It recognizes songs, and they'll be familiar and comforted from songs that were listened to as they were in the womb of their mother. It is all things that are wonderful, and it is that love of, of another that brings us to that position. We learn to want to desire nice cars and big houses and beautiful homes and that sort of thing. We have to, have to be taught that. But the intrinsic love of another person, that begins immediately and is with us. It's, um, we, we are taught that our self is more important than others. It's lo- love is the key. Love is the key. Love is the key. And your identity, as you said earlier, is really wrapped around living for other people because that's where you engage in love. Um, and hopefully it's, it's a reciprocal uh, situation. And usually, uh, well, many times, it, it can be when you give. There are times when other people just use people. But many times when you give, that's when you can receive love back. Because if you never give, you're probably never going to receive love back. But that's not mentioned in the dissenting opinion. You know, what is your, why isn't your identity wrapped up with family and friends and religion as opposed to the world? Anyways, um, Let's take this to a higher plane. Let's take it to where it always goes. That reading from St. Paul we gave earlier mentioned a little thing about the cross. May he never boast except in the cross. Why the cross? What is it about the cross? Well, somebody who thought a lot about the cross and what it meant was St. Alphonsus Liguori. And he wrote that St. John says that Jesus called the hour of his passion his hour because, as a devout commentator writes, this was the time for which our Redeemer had most sighed during his whole life because by suffering and dying for men, he desired to make them understand the immense love that he bore to them. That's why he desired that hour. That's why he desired the passion, so that he could make humankind understand the love that Jesus had for us. That, when you're thinking about this decision, whether it was decided rightly, who's right, who's wrong, whether there's truth, whether there's not truth, if you allow yourself to think of and try to contemplate the love of a loving God for you. I mean, you don't get, you can't get any higher than that. Um, and it's, it's because of what he endured. You, you talk about, Bob, suffering through the pains of, of your kids, that you felt their pain. You, you are, you know, you, you almost wish that you know, the pain could be exclusively yours, that they didn't have to feel it. You, you know, you, you connect with them um, through, through the pain. And if you could suffer pain for them, you'd gladly do it. Trade it in a minute. Trade in, it in a hurry. Because you don't want to spare them from that. But what is it? I mean, so what, what would that feel like? What would that look like? So we've got God himself suffering for us. What would that seem like? I mean, well, St. Alphonsus writes about that too. He says, O God, what horror must then have smitten heaven at the sight of the Son of the Eternal Father crucified between two thieves? Such in truth was the prophecy of Isaiah. He was reputed with the wicked. Therefore, St. John Chrysostom contemplating Jesus upon the cross, cried out, full of amazement and love, I see him in the midst, and the Holy Trinity. I see him in the midst, between Moses and Elijah. I see him in the midst, between two thieves. As though he had said, I see my Savior first in heaven between the Father and the Holy Ghost. I see him upon the Mount Tabor between two saints, Moses and Elijah. How then can I see him crucified upon Calvary between two thieves? 
how could he? I mean, yeah, the view from heaven, looking down at Calvary, there is, there is, a, you know, a part of the Trinity. There's the Son of God. There's Christ himself being killed in brutal fashion between two thieves. He, it didn't happen um, other than he wanted it to happen. He wanted it this way. He humbled himself to, became, to become, man, uh, become a man. And then he humbled himself, not just by death on a cross, which is brutal, big, which is a big humbling, but he humbled himself by death on a cross between two thieves. That was the place he decided to take up with sinners, in the company of sinners. He was reputed with the wicked, as Isaiah foretold. That's where he wants, that's, that's the place he wants to call his home. He loves us that much. And he, Ray, to, to, go, to go to the point that we've been talking all the way through, he didn't want to do this. Jesus did not want to do this. If you read the scriptures about Holy Thursday, and he was in Gethsemane, and he was thinking of all of this, talking to the Father, and he sweat blood. I didn't even know that was really possible, and then had to do some discovery and learn that that absolutely is possible, that that's not a myth, that that is a possibility. That's how much he didn't want to do it, but then he went and did it because he loves us. God here on earth didn't worry about himself or his own life. He worried about us. He worried about his children. He took care of us in doing that, even though he didn't want to. That is love. That is what it's all about. That's what he wants us to desire, that same love. And he would not keep that from us. He gave us that beautiful love that we could then take that to others. And if someone only thinks of themselves as the most important and the end-all, be-all, that's a tough life. I, uh, I'd have to say of all the happy people I've seen in my life, it's those that have beauty and loved ones around them. And not the one that is off on his own with mountains of gold. How many right? rich people have you heard stories about that have committed suicide? You bet. Or, I mean, there are or, other people. That or commit, famous people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, popularity. People that you think they have everything. Right. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that love of others. And Jesus showed that. He gave up his life to allow us to have a relationship between him and the Father. That's, that's the target. That's the goal. That's nirvana. We want to be that same way, to love others so much that we would give up all that's important to us, not the dissenting position which says we are the end-all, be-all. All that matters is who we are and what we want. So if you're Catholic and you're thinking, well, maybe there's a middle ground. If you're Catholic and you're thinking, you know, what is, you know, the proper, you know, uh, the proper decision on abortion should we not allow you know allow some of it you know as a good catholic you know what is what is what is the truth here don't people have a right to do this sort of thing if you're wondering about that at all then you know ask yourself this question which of these two worldviews seem right to you because you need to understand that the worldview that the world is important and the worldview that the world is not so important these are are what what underlie this decision. Um, you know, it's really important always to get to the to the root of things, to the heart of things. So, of these two different views of the world and of life, which seems better, which seems like, you know, it makes more sense, which seems like, you know, it you could be you could, you could be happier with it. Um, and so, you know, that's where, I mean, use your own common sense, use your own intuition. You know, we, this is what we want to, this is what we like to do here. We like to point out these kinds of questions and just say, hey, which one seems to make more sense? A right to choose, so-called, um, is, is really wrapped up at this emphasis on the one, the one person, the individual being paramount. 
And does it seem right that even for that individual, that's going to really create satisfaction and happiness? You know, the dissenting justices talk about the need, and they go at great lengths to talk about the need for the constitution of this country, the source document for all our law, that the constitution of, of our country needs to be viewed and regarded and treated as a living document. It's not just buried or mired in the historical period at which it was created, but it has to, it has to bend, it has to, has to mold to changes in the times and so forth. And that's very important to them, that it's a living document. Well, there is, there is truth in that uh, to some degree. Of course, the, you know, the details, of course, are the most important thing. Is to, to how far do you bend it? What is, what is the right view to take on a certain issue in this day? And for that answer, let me bring up to you another living document. It's called the living word. There is something called the Word of God. It's called the Bible. If you don't think it's living, read it. Read, f read the Bible for five minutes each day. See what begins to happen to you. Read the same thing a month later. See if something else doesn't suggest itself to you. See what happens to you. See if it's not living. See if it doesn't make you more alive. There's, we could do a whole program, maybe we will, on the living word. But I offer that one final comment on this. In any event, that's, uh, that's a review of this really hot-button issue that has got everybody talking and many people up in arms these days. So we hope that you've found it provocative and, and maybe also even enlightening. And we hope you join us again. But uh, that's not going to be the end of this program. We're going to close this program like we always do with a prayer. And as we always do, we're going to ask uh, for help in, uh, in this prayer from, uh, from Bob, if you would please, sir. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your love. Thank you for coming here to earth to put yourself in position to save us. We ask that we can do that back, that we can see the love that you have and allow us to help others, those that are in trouble, those that are in need, those that have issues or, or difficulties. Allow us truly always to think of you and others before ourselves. That's what your son did when he died here on earth 2,000 years ago, and that's what you desire for us. Allow us always to think of others and to take care of them and to spread your word and your will across the world. And we pray all of this in the name of that Son that came to earth, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Father and of the Son, Son the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.